Welcome to the Maintainable Software Podcast, where we speak with seasoned practitioners who have helped organizations work past the problems often associated with technical debt and legacy code. I'm your host, Robbie Russell. On this episode, we are joined by Gianluca Arvizano, who joins us from Torino, Italy. Gianluca is a senior staff software engineer at Packet and an open source maintainer and contributor. Gianluca Arbizano, welcome to Maintainable. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So as you reflect on your experience in the industry, what do you believe are a few common traits of a healthy and well-maintained software code base? Well, I like when I work on projects that I don't have to think too much about how to inject new code into them because everything looks like easy and very like comfortable in some way. And I understand that it requires like testing and documentation and also a very well shared, you know, set of like foundation across the team and people because it's very easy to write code, you know, when everything is new. But when code bases become like old, it takes way more to have a line of code that it should be. So um, I like to work on projects when I see that yeah, it's po- it's possible to extend them in some way because you know you know there are a lot of thoughts about how to do it. And do you think that's a problem with the curriculum of software programming education process, or do you feel like that's like a hard thing maybe to teach at that point? Yeah, I mean, I think um, it's not really. It's something that you you learn along the way, and I I think it's something that people in the team have to set. So like guidelines or, you know, like design patterns or architecture decisions that you make have an impact on the future of the project itself, of the code base. And if you take them wrong, they will, you know, the code base will suffer. But I think that also developers that has to work with the code base will suffer on them. I find myself like a lot of time thinking about why is this code so complicated to extend? I mean, this feature looks very simple, but I can do it in a simple way because I have to think like for half an hour just to figure out, you know, where to touch the code. To, to get what I have to do. And I think we are in a position to, to do good structuring code. It's just harder because as a developer, we like to complain and we have opinions and we all know something better than others. So uh, sometimes we just have to step back and say, whatever we do is fine, just make it clear because that's what we need. And you mentioned when you're working on things that have, you're like, oh, this should be in theory a simple feature or task, you know, implement into the into the software code base. But then you have to kind of get that mental model of this the whole system or try to figure out how it's going to interact with every other pieces. Do you often find yourself or within your team using phrases like technical debt often? Yeah, no, not really in the position where I am now because I recently joined a new company. So for me, it's like everything new. But back in the day, we definitely had some problem where the code base was like so big that we we weren't we weren't even able to figure out why the code was there, what it was doing, and that was definitely technical depth that was coming from lack of communication or lack of documentation or you know I think there is a lot of value on writing issues, writing poor casts because they stay there with the code, if you can connect them in some way. And I mean, when I'm there looking at the code and there is nothing more than a bunch of conditions, you know, my mind starts to do a lot of questions about why it's 
that condition like that why we have some forage there and sometimes all those stuff can be super clear if i can build a little a bit a little bit of context that it's outside of like the code itself and i think a lot of teams uh, that i work for didn't really get that for them was very like the code was crucial because as a developer is is what we do all day but there is more that we have to you know try to figure out has it been in your experience that Technical debt has sometimes been mislabeled. Like something, some your, you or someone on your team might have called something technical debt that you might not think nowadays is being considered technical debt. Versus, like, is it just bad code, or is it, is it a scenario where you knew that you were making some sort of trade off, and you would maybe later on go back and refactor that, or you know, finish doing a more thorough job on that that code base. Yeah, I think early in my days, like as a developer, I was. Like the concept was very tight. The concept of technical depth was a lot tied to like code. That's it. I mean, if the code is not good, that's technical depth. But I learned that techniques get far away from code time to time. Like, as I said before, you have like documentation, you have like issues, you have comments on those issues, you have discussions and like docs that are shared like years before about the topic and they they are there lost in the darkness of Google Drive. All those stuff builds, uh, in my opinion, in the opinion that I have today, technical depths. So it's not really like something that I was convinced about when I, when I started was like, the code is technical depth. Everything else is something else. It's process depth or whatever. Uh, I don't know how to call it. But for now, I think I'm convinced that everything that touches like what you are doing as a developer, like designing and architecting and document documenting what you are doing or answering pull requests and issues with commands, code review, all of that, if, if we don't do it well, that creates technical depth. I hear you on that one. I'm I'm so curious about you know. I recently, uh, when I was doing a little bit of prep for this, I saw you had written an article about documentation. Actually, it was a it was a topic that you had written on your blog um, earlier this year. And a couple of things that you touched on in there was related to making it like a regular part of your process and things like that. And knowing also maybe the distinction of where you should document different types of information. For example, you had touched on who's the like maybe the intended audience or the the stakeholders involved in for who needs to kind of be aware of this information. Can you share for our listeners a little bit of kind of like a recap of that like in terms of when you're going to produce some or write some documentation, when do you decide it's better to document it outside of the code versus like inline code documentation? Yeah, when I wrote that article, I think I I wrote that because I realized there are a set of stuff that you have to develop as early as you can, even more in open source, because I, I work a lot in open source, but I think it applies for like other scenarios as well, like more traditional companies. And some of them are like a, a good testing environment and a good documentation is another one because those are habits that you develop and let's say that you write like a code base that had doesn't have a place where you can share documentation for like a couple of months uh, you will end up not having documentation or not having person that writes documentation because they don't know where to go like it the, it's too deep the effort to do to write documentation for the first time when there is no documentation as long as you go without it as harder it gets to catch up with your code. So that's definitely one of the, the, the things that I had in my mind when I wrote that. So wrote documentation as early as you can, even if it is a doc folder unstructured in your repository, that's better than nothing. 
So that's definitely one of the, of the feedback that I learn on myself and that works. Uh, so like throw, like decide where to throw your verbs that doesn't apply to everywhere else uh, in a directory, in a folder. And that, that's enough. Uh, somebody will make come as a technical writer and will help you, or you will, you know, take a week to, to make order on all the math that you, you now have in the doc, in the documentation folder, but not having anything is, is worse than like having something bad because you lose context moving forward and that context, you will never get to the context again. So that's definitely one. And about like stakeholders, there are different people that write documentation, like it reads documentation. You read documentation or write documentation for yourself. So you are the developer and I'm writing the, the, the code and I feel like I have to stick a note about what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. And I think in that scenario, I usually tend to write stuff in, in the documentation, in the code itself, even has a big header. I'm fascinating about opening C code bases that has like these gigantic headers that you, you know, that they are longer than the code itself. Um, because I think they, they, they give you a, a good context and as a developer, we love to stay in, in our editor. And so it's good to be there. So when I'm writing something for myself, I do it like in the code base. When I'm in the mindset of somebody else, uh, like can be a user or can be a manager, I usually tend to, to select another place. That makes sense. You know, one of the things you mentioned about having, deciding where to put documentation is important so that early on, maybe in the process, or at least having a foundation for, so you know people know where to contribute. I've been in teams, I, I, run, I manage teams, and sometimes I, I find that there'll be maybe disagreements about where that should happen. And so then nobody makes a decision on anywhere. And so it's like, well, since we can't decide on what the best place to do it is, let's not do it at all, I suppose, in, in the meantime, until someone comes up with a stronger opinion. And sometimes I feel like it's just like that one person having a, maybe a slightly stronger opinion, be like, well, I'm going to start doing it here, follow along. And if you want to propose a different, a different approach, let's do that. But like, I feel like it always ends up needing at least one person to kind of drive it forward to be like, nope, let's do it here. I'm doing it here. Follow this pattern. If you want to con continue tr contributing, maybe also mentioning that hopefully someone else doesn't start doing it somewhere entirely separate. And then you have multiple places that for the same type of documentation, and then that's not helpful either. So I think it is a, it is a challenge for teams, but it's, I think you, you make a good point of just starting somewhere. And I know that like having a docs folder in your repository is probably a good place to start doing that for, for sure. Yeah. I mean, as I said, as I said earlier, like the decision-making and developers tend to, you know, have opinions and, you know, create friction at times. So you, like, you have to be able to figure out if it's time to, you know, to make a stamp and say, okay, I'm going to be the one that take the decision or we're going to get out from this meeting with a decision no matter what. Or if it's the case to say, okay, I, I want it, but I don't care. So when we're going to place it wherever somebody says it's going to, it's going to, it's good enough because I just want to throw my, my, the, the things that I have in my mind in some place that we stay forever. So yeah, it's not easy. <laughs> you mentioned, uh, that you work also on open source projects. And I know that was going to be a topic we're going to dive quite a bit into. Um, and if I understand, you you contribute to open source projects pretty much on a daily basis, right? Yeah. And right now, since I joined 
packet. I I'm a software engineer in the developer relationship team. So my my job is mainly to make the community and the customers uh, capable of like interacting with packet API, and we do it like doing Kubernetes integrations or Terraform integrations and stuff like that. Previously, I was working at uh, Influx Data, that is the company behind InfluxDB. So for us, open source was uh, is the uh, the core of the of the company itself. So yeah. And that's also how I, how I learn how to code. So for me, it's like communities is important. Nice. And, you know, in, within the open source world, and, you know, do you think there's a difference in how open source projects approach and deal with technical debt and thinking about those types of decisions versus when you're working on, say, a product that might be driven more by sales and marketing needs and things of that nature and the product needs? Do, do you find that there's quite a stark difference there? Yeah, I think there is there is a, there is a difference, but the difference becomes bigger and bigger as more as the project grows. So if it's a small or a, like project or a solo project, open source projects, you know, you are almost capable of driving by yourself or with a group of people that will may that will may be selected selected like in people that has your same mindset. So in this case, in that case, it's easier. But when the project becomes bigger and there is more, you know, interest from the community and everybody has more opinions on that. And usually open source projects that I contribute to are targeting developers like Docker, Kubernetes or InfluxDB itself. And in that case, there is a lot of attention on the code that gets written so usually when if you open a random like pull request on against kubernetes you will see a good amount of commands and code review for all of them uh, because we are all developers and we are all willing to help each other so that's that's good but i think it's way easier to get code reviews uh, in open source than in a, in a closed source environment because there are more people that are willing to to help or that has touched that code before, so you can you have way more contributors uh, than your company in one. So that's the main difference for me, I presume. Uh, it's also you know it's it's harder when you get contribution from open source because there is no, no there is no clear like ownership or stakeholders. I mean, it's mainly the the person that knows more around the code that you are touching in open source is the person that that has a strong voice on it in a close in your company your manager or the sales team or whatever drives the uh, opinions are there they have gravity because they can decide you know what's important or not and they can say okay this has to be done because we have a contract that you know pays our bills uh, in open source that doesn't really you know happen that much so yeah you know you mentioned that you kind of started to learn to program within the open source. What were some of those early types of projects that you found yourself getting involved with? Yeah, in my early days I started with PHP. So as like I started as um, you know, doing websites and WordPress and Joomla and this kind of stuff. I studied like six months in the university and I left because I was like happy to, you know, work and try to, you know, challenge myself in that way. So I ended up taking my first job as a solo developer and I did a CMS like three times because the first time was like spaghetti code and I wasn't able to figure it out at some point. So I made it in object oriented and I made it again with a framework in PHP. And yeah, like the, the evolution that I had was driven by me, like on ERC, like pinging people and like asking for help. That's how I learned like uh, how to code. That's how I learned that there is a lot more than my small 
office room because I work from home, so that, that's it. Uh, there is way more outside, and when I can, I try to help. When I when I can't, I try to husk, and that's a good way to to grow. So yeah, that's that's it. That's how I started, and that's that's why I'm I'm here. So it's uh, I have some like a similar story in in some ways of you know I spent a lot of time on IRC back in the late nineties in the early two thousands and things like that. And then, so yeah, a lot of my programming was hanging out in PHP, Ruby programming language channels, Nginx channels to ask people for, you know, help there. You know, you were working on some of your own projects back then. And then when you started contributing to open source projects and maybe, do you remember what some of your first pull requests looked like, or were they even pull requests at that point yet? Or yeah, they were already poor cast. So I was born in the age of cloud computing. So okay, <laughs> that's it. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I like I think my first contribution comes to like Zen framework. That is like that was a very super popular PHP framework. That is that that was the one that I pick up like because I was in their ERC channel. And there is also like Enrico. That is a guy like it was a maintainer there that it lives in my same city. So we like I joined his meetup and he showed me a bunch of stuff. So that that's how it started. And I think I made some contribution there at first. But it was small stuff like some bugs that I probably find the validator form package and stuff like that. So nice. For those listening who haven't yet taking that step to actually contribute to an open source project, what advice would you offer to like a developer that's maybe junior or mid-level developer that's they're feeling a little intimidated about the idea of, oh, I'm going to go tell some open source project maintainer to, they should, we, we should make this change to make things better. Do you have any advice for them? Yeah, I'm I'm happy to share some some of the stuff I learned like when I started and then I'm learning now that I'm in the other side for some projects. Like the the CEO for uh, GitHub like uh, recently said that the first way you have to contribute uh, is to like clone the repository. And when I heard that it was during the GitHub Satellite or GitHub Universe, I remember the conference, but like the first time I heard that was like, okay, that looks very obvious to me. But after a couple of days, like remembering that sentence, I mean, I thought it, like it sticked in my mind and I think it works. I mean, even after like eight, nine years contributing, contributing to open source, I started to clone more repositories because that's how everything starts. As soon as like, if you do NPM install or compositing install or go mod install and you have stuff as a dependency, you feel like, like in another layer. So they, you feel like those are other stuff. This is not code. This is just something that you consume. But as soon as you clone it and you have in your Git folder in your laptop, that becomes your your code. And as soon as it becomes your code, like code that you own, like your mood stuff uh, changes. So I think that's the that's that's a very good advice that I tried on myself, and that works. So clone the repository and then you know make it like close nearby the code that you've write because it takes another like point of view. Another feedback I'm happy to share is that you don't need to be like a a developer or like a strong developer or whatever to like, I I don't define myself as a strong developer either because I'm not really, I don't go super deep on topics. I I like to scratch the surface and know everything I can know, but I'm not really like a, yeah, that kind of learner, let's say. 
and uh, but even for myself like i i can do any contribution on code like i'm part of the sig release in kubernetes that is the uh, group of people that manage the release uh, for kubernetes itself and i don't write any code as part of that group i have other five six people working with me and trying to manage the you know the the bug triage side of the of the release and we don't write any code we just you know read issues read pull requests and we try to push them and make the authors or the reviewers to to do their job effectively so that's a contribution that doesn't require code you don't even need to be a developer for that so yeah i think you just have to, to you know you just have to put your face in the first line if you are opening an issue because you think something that matters you have to transmit that to the maintainer so you have to show me that you care about it when I see an issue with the title and one sentence, I, I really get upset because that's not valuable for my time uh, and for anybody's time. It's like, tell me about your use case, even if it's crazy and tell me that it's crazy. I mean, I open issues and say, this is a corner case. Nobody should do that, but I find myself doing that. So how can you, how can I get out from it? So just, just, you know, share that, share whatever comes to your mind. Don't be you know, too strict on, or don't summarize too much. Just tell me why you're opening this issue, because that's the most important stuff I can do. Yeah. Maintainers, they want to be able to help deal with it, especially when there's issues versus uh, say small improvement or feature or feature requests, which may not be needed by everybody. I, as a, I'm an open source maintainer myself for a couple of projects. And th there's always that balance there of being like, what sort of ways can I, um, make it easy for people to use the tools that I'm building or I've released, but also when they're, when they're submitting up, you know, a report request or, or just even just an issue, like providing some good details. I think that's some good, some good advice there. Do you find that as a maintainer, you've found some good ways on how to make it easy to solicit that information or to even get the, you mentioned like pulling down the, the, the repository for your project, do you feel like you feel pretty good about the documentation that you have on how to get things up and running in the first place for your project so that you're, you're reducing the barrier for someone to actually clone the repository and then use it somehow? Yeah, that's that's a nice question because we we have a lot of like different setup. Everybody like has its own tools, its own workflow. And a lot of people likes like I love to make my own like workflow for everything because I like to clone stuff and, you know, uh, like touch them in some way. So it's very hard to write documentation that covers all the possible use cases. So I think when I, when I write documentation, I try to open the door for that scenario. So my setup is one of the possible setup. So be clear that this is the one that I use. This is the one I tried, uh, and leave a place for other people to share their setup make those setups as valuable as the one that, that I use or that you use, uh, because, you know, don't judge them just because they use a different editor or whatever. So now we have, you know, in the DevOps, we have like Terraform and we have like Ansible, SaltStack and Vagrant for local environment. Now there is Docker and tomorrow will be like something else. So you can write a, a setup guide that works for, for everybody. So just write a bunch of them and keep the door open for contribution because that's an easy way to get contributors because everybody will have to you know make make its own step to the setup some way so if he can find if he can find one that works for him him just stay open for contribution <laughs>
Nice. You know, you mentioned on the whole idea of like uh, one of the the CEO of GitHub suggesting that one of the first ways to contribute to open source is to clone a repository. And I was, you know, I was reflecting a little bit on some of the the aha moments I've witnessed while pairing with other software developers at times when we might be debugging an issue in a in in a internal product application or whatever for a business, and they're like, "Well, we're having this weird issue, and it, you know, we're interacting with this dependency. Something's not working right." And so they're like looking on GitHub at the code in the browser, trying to make sense of where the things are. And then I'm like, you have that code on your computer. Like you, you've downloaded that dependency. And I'm like, are you, what version are you running? Like, cause maybe the version that you're looking at by default is like a main or, you know, master branch in the repository. Like what version are you working off of? And they're like, oh, let me go switch that in the browser and in the GitHub thing. And they go select that version. And then they're looking around. I'm like, let's just go open what's actually already on your computer, probably hidden in some dependency directory. You can open that up and then we can, you know, add some debug statements in the code and see what it's doing there. And they're like, oh my gosh, you can do that. And I'm like, it, it surprises me how how that that's not more known. So I, I wanted to bring it up. Yeah, that that that's true. I, I think you you make a good point. Like it's cultural. Like people that don't really look a lot at open source like codes, they think that their dependency is just whatever, a monster. Some binary file. <laughs> yeah, yeah, an obscure piece of code, but th- there are actual code has the one that you write behind that. So just go and check it. It's true. So I know that one of the projects that you help maintain is called Test Containers, that like helps with Docker-related integration tests. Could you tell us a little bit about the types of software projects that might benefit from it? Yeah, yeah, I think I like to write codes that I can, I mean, I like to write tests when I write, you know, a new feature. And usually it depends on the code that you've write, but you will find yourself like it's way easier to write integration tests or it's way easier to write end-to-end tests or, it, or it's easier to write unit tests. It depends on the code that you are writing. I wrote another article about testing that explained like how I think about testing. And I'm not like a TDD, BDD person. I write code that... When I write tests, I write it because it makes my development faster or it makes my code uh, more solid. I have that kind of mindset when I when I write code. And uh, in order to make it effectively, I have to have all the possible tests I can have, I can imagine. So sometimes it's a unit test because maybe there is a lot of computation and not enough, not a lot of like integration with other code. Sometimes it's like end to end because I don't even know what I'm doing. So I have to write a test from like the outside or from the far, the far away I can, I can write it. And like test containers is a, is a library. I, I'm not a Java developer, but at some point I find myself like contributing to Zipkin, that is a distributed tracer written in, uh, in Java. I discovered that they had this, they were using this nice library called test containers, Java, or you can think about that, like a wrapper around the Docker SDK, but designed with testing in mind. So it's the API for the library is designed to be written inside a test. And what does it mean? It means that you can, in one line of code, in two line of code, you can like create and destroy a container. So in this way, you can do it like inside a test case. And the, the library is designed to spin up like containers that don't collide with the ports. So you can open like Nginx like a, t- a hundred times on your laptop and it won't, it will always use a different port. So you can run those tests in parallel and those containers in parallel. So I, I really find it was a cool project. And uh, at that time, 
I didn't see a good library in Go uh, that was doing the same. Unfortunately, I discovered that they, we had one already because usually there is one, but I discovered that like way later. Uh, but still, I think having a community of people like that has the same purpose across li uh, across languages is super helpful because we I maintain the Go version, uh, but there is the Java one, the, the super popular one, and there is the Rust one, the Node.js one. And all those people working on the same challenge, we are sharing a lot of information, a lot of experience, a lot of the setup that we spoke before, uh, and a lot of the CI environment that we have to deal with are crossed pain because... Uh, uh, the Java, like the Java people, has the same problem we have, and the Node.js one runs on Circle CI in the same way we run Go. So there is a lot of exchange that we can do on that. So and I think it's super valuable, and yeah, it it helps you to write like to programmatically write your environment uh, in the language you use. In my case, Go. So I'm gonna. I'm gonna stick with Go for from now. So when you you can deploy like a bunch of containers, like even the one that from your application, because it use you can build from a Docker file, programmatically. And yeah, I, I find it a very effective way to write end-to-end -end tests. Mainly because I'm so, I'm very familiar with Docker, probably. So I I just I just have it everywhere, and uh, yeah. But yeah, give it a try. Nice. Do they have a, a version yet for Ruby out of curiosity? I don't know on top of my mind, but I think maybe there is. I don't know. So are, are there, you know, when you're reflecting on your on open source projects, are there any code metrics that you tend to keep an eye on or measure across your projects that you work on? Do, do you care much about code metrics? Not really. Uh, probably I should I should check more of them. But I mean, the the last experience I had that I think is related to this question. The test containers project growth, luckily, like now we count almost like we are close to 600 stars and people, the community is growing there. And since I wrote the documentation for it, like in a, in a static website, like the community is growing even faster. And I noticed that the number of issues were related to like incompatibility or lack of like resiliency were growing. And that's where I stopped to do everything else and that just took two weeks to do like bug fixings or I like scan for race conditions and I fix all those, uh, you know, stuff that weren't critical because the community wasn't that big and the code wasn't that used, widely used as it is today. So I don't know if it applies to your question, but the number of issues in some way triggers my attention a lot and the, the kind of, of issues as well. So that's why I use labels a lot. So I, I, every time a, a new issue comes, I tend to label it as soon as I can. So I will have an overview about the kind of issues that I'm facing. Nice. Do you also take advantage of any sort of like linting tools or anything in your process to kind of help reinforce a coding style guide? I tend to use only what I cannot avoid, <laughs> let's say. Uh, so I'm not super passionate about like linters or, or static checks, but in Go, we have a very good community around that because uh, the Go formats are part of the compiler. So you, you there is a format that is the, the one that Go decided that is the format. So for me, like the Go FMT, Go Lint, uh, Go Vet are stuff that I run all the time. There is another popular one that I don't use that often, but for for Bitcoin basis that where performance are critical, that, like we use it for InfluxDB, that is like a database. So the complexity there is different than like other libraries that I write. 
and they, it's called static check. The, the project is calling that way. I tend to onboard them when I see the need for it, for what is not standard for the community, let's say. We'll be back with my interview with Gianluca in just a moment. Hi, it's me, Robbie. I wanted to take a quick moment to say thank you for making time to listen to the Maintainable podcast. If you're finding these conversations valuable, please consider sharing a link amongst your peers and writing a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Also, do you know someone in the industry who I should be speaking with on Maintainable? Shoot me an email to Robbie with a Y at maintainable.fm. And now, back to our interview with Gianluca Arvizano. I'm wondering about, you know, you were talking about earlier about, you know, you worked on PHP projects and you know that was a part of your profession at one point, or you were working on like open source projects and stuff with PHP and building CMSs. At what point did you start to realize you were working on existing software, maybe more often than working on brand new software? Was there a point, you know, we talked a little bit about that, how that's not something you learn necessarily through the education process, but most software developers, when they get their first job, probably aren't working with a blank canvas and be like, okay, brand new application at this new job um, by themselves as a new budding junior developer. As you look back on your your career of working on other people's code bases, do you remember any, for lack of a better phrase, horror stories or bad memories about really complicated challenges that you dealt with? Yeah, I have to say that I didn't, in my career, I probably, maybe sadly, I didn't really have the opportunity to start brand new uh, when I was working in a company. Definitely in open source that, that I had more chance to do it. But yeah, one of the story that I I will remember forever, like it was my early days, and we realized that years after running that code in PHP, you have this like there is this this set of libraries that do hydration, so you can take an object and hydrate the object B from A, and you set a strategy and you give the object and you find data in the other new object, and that's how it works. You you will may have the strategy that use comment case and calls like the uh, the function name and hydrates the other object for that with setter and getter this kind of stuff um, and like we used to like one of my colleagues wrote a function that uh, was taking an object serializing the object replacing the name and of, for the object for the class and like serializing it back to a, to an object in PHP. I mean, there are a lot of possible side effects that you can get from this practice, let's say. Uh, it was a, a huge, uh, like, it was the core object of, like, the, you know, the, the, the application. So a huge one with methods that, like, was developed in, like, over 10 years in, like, multiple versions of PHP. So it was a gigantic, like, monster. And to be more effective and to avoid writing, like, a huge, like, hydrator class and strategy and test it, he, would, he just made that, that trick. Years later, we were refactoring that code and we, we realized that and was like, oh, this is scary. So we're going to like, and how, why is, is it working? And we realized that it was, it was working only because the length of the class name, the two class name were the same length because the PHP class for serialization and serialization object works only for, the, if the, at the time was working, I don't know if it was the same, but only for the, that trick was working only, only for that fact. So it was like just you know, lucky, super lucky, let's say. And that was one, or I remember the first time I made a queue on AWS 
you use like SQS and you get charged like every time you pull from the queue or something like that. And I, I forget, or I, you know, I, I didn't know. So I forget to, to place a slip. So my worker was like pulling like constantly from the queue. And luckily my, like my company had good threshold and for me, so, <laughs> and they, they got notified and they fixed that before it became like a huge bill. But that was another like fun story, mainly because I never, like at that time, I, it was my first time writing a worker. So who knows? I didn't think about that. <laughs> no, it's like, it's, you use these things sometimes. Yeah. Those are, those are always fun little stories about the weirdest bugs or the weirdest things you've implemented yourself or when you ran up a, an AWS bill because you left something going or something. It's quite, it always surprises me how often like we'll work on other companies' projects because we're a consulting company up here at Planet Argonne and we, um, Sometimes we'll we'll get invited to an AWS account, and I'll be like looking around. I'm like, "What are these EC2 instances?" And they're like, "People are like, I don't know." I'm like, well, "It's been running for like six years. Does anyone know what this is for? No. Does anyone have a way to log in? No. I don't. I don't know. It was here when I st- when I when I joined the company, and you're just like, can we temporarily just turn it off and see what happens? It's like and so things like that. Just uh, this can always be kind of like a. Sometimes we can end up feeling like we're uh, heroes because we're we can come in and be like we just saved you hundreds of dollars a month because we asked the question of like can we turn that off like I, what what is it being used for so clean up after yourself I think as a maybe is the thing to think about you know a couple of quick last questions I wanted to touch on here you know if you're thinking a little bit about your career and you touched on how your idea of like how technical debt has maybe changed over the years do you feel like you had another strong opinion maybe six to 10 years ago that's drastically changed since then? Well, I think probably the, you know, the way I communicate, I have more opinions about how an effective communication should happen. So I like to write more than what I used to do in the past, because I think what I write stays there over journeys. I also like to, I have opinions about where to write because if I write on Slack, it's almost like speaking for me. If I write on issues or on Jira tickets, they stay there forever. If I write on Google Docs, I know that it's going to be like forgiven at some point or it will stay there forever. Nobody will read it uh, or find it again because like Google Drive is like this black box when you write write stuff there and nobody's going to find them anymore. So yeah, I think that's a way to have an effective conversation and a way to communicate that stays is something that is important. And also like asynchronous communication. So they, now that we all work in remote and I work remote like from five years now, uh, and it's something that I learned effectively also during the open source like um, contribution that I did because there everything is asynchronous and everything has a time zone that is like unknown. So yeah, for me, it's it's very sustainable. The fact that I don't have to do, I mean, I I try to keep the number of recurring meetings as low as I can. And I I try to have an agenda for the recurring meetings. It's something that I I didn't used to do. All those small stuff all together are are good and makes, it makes like a project maintainable and easy to, to figure out in the future for yourself in the future. I think you make a good point on that on the agendas and having consistent agendas, you try to keep those in a pretty well-organized fashion each time you have those meetings as well, just so that I feel like it's so helpful for everybody to know what to predict, how those meetings are going to go. Like, oh, I understand how this meeting goes. This is how we can contribute. This is what I need to do to prepare to come to that meeting or conversation. And you were talking about how you 
you know, used to spend a lot of time maybe on IRC. So like Slack, IRC, real-time communication, you know, mentioning asynchronous communication, which is when you might take a maybe a slower path of perceived as being slower, where you might spend more time writing out a much longer response to something versus quick back and forth little responses in a GitHub response. Like it, it's really cheap to spend, you know, a sentence or two, quick snappy thing, but don't expect the other person is awake <laughs> to even reply quickly. So it's like you want to spend the time to like provide enough context so that when they come back and are looking at it, they can you can kind of keep moving the conversations forward, hopefully, or at least let them just spend the time to kind of write a longer, more thoughtful message. So that's something that I've been wondering and been curious about too, just myself as far as how my own business runs, because we're all located in the same time zone, same city, but we all work at home now because of the virus and stuff right now. But, and we're start, we're struggling with, wait, wait, maybe we're doing too much real time and that's actually hurting us uh, in our productivity because there's always something, there's always a conversation to have to like look and see if you need to be part of or not. And that's a, that can be challenging. So any any tips for me on how to help my team get more comfortable with asynchronous communication? Yeah, I think I think there is also like a skill. It's experience. Like when I when you are learning something, and like in my early days, I was learning like the learning process. Like it was I was developing the habit to learn how to be an effective developer. And like the journey at that time, it, probably long issues or mails wasn't what I was looking for because I was looking more for like a, a mentor or like something that I, I didn't, I didn't have any idea about what, where to go. So for me at that time was, was different. As soon as you get in the habit and you understand how to learn and you can be effective by yourself, it's probably better to, to start writing long issues. And probably like one of the, one of the way I try to to sell asynchronous communication is by using the output of the, of the of the asynchronous communication. So link commands from GitHub or links issues from like Jira and stuff like that because you you save time. Because you know if you if you write and never read or never use what you write, it can be frustrating. I understand that. But as soon as you see that is a cycle that you have to, you know, that grows and grows over time and gets useful, I think it's the best way to onboard people on that idea. I also like, you know, to go outside and, and, you know, have free time. And if you are, if your day is full of Zoom meetings, you can do it because you are always there, like checking your calendars, like, you know, all the stuff. So I like to take a break when it's too, too warm outside uh, or inside. And, and I can do that effectively in a, in a synchronous communication world. I have, I need emails, I need time. And I like that. So for me, it's also something that I really enjoy more than, you know, it's effective to me and I like that. So it's a good combination. Great. So as we kind of wrap things up, quick few last questions. One, what non-software development related book do you find yourself most often recommending to people? I'm actually reading right now a book that's called Obsessed and it's from Emily Haywards and it's about like building a brand that people love from day one. And I'm transitioning a lot to like reads that have like that come from other people's experience because I think there is, you know, like technical challenges are good, but people are more complicated sometimes. So <laughs> are, oft, are often more complicated, let's say. So I like to, to, to get new ideas from real experience and from other people. So that, that's good. And it, it has a lot of tips about like how to communicate effectively what you think and how to picture like your, your idea in your mind and how to communicate that efficiently. Mm -hmm. 
So I think that that's good because you can you can be like the, the smarter person ever, but if you can communicate that in a good way or make it understandable, uh, it, it you won't be effective as you can be. So. I'll, I'll definitely include a link to that in the uh, in the show notes for everybody. Where can listeners best follow your thoughts on software development online? Yeah, I ramble very often on Twitter, so you can follow me there. And I have a blog where I try to wrap all my all my rambling together. And yeah, so see you there. Awesome. Well, it's been such a delight having you on Maintainable, Gianluca. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. It was so much fun. Hey, hey, hey,